Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I sat down this week for a live Axe Files at the Institute of Politics with Robert Costa of The Washington Post, who's teamed up with his legendary colleague Bob Woodward on a new best-selling book called Peril, about the final harrowing days of the Trump administration, when the very foundations of our democracy were tested. We spoke about that history and what it portends for the future. We also talked about Costa's own intriguing journey, including what it was like to work with Woodward, who, after all, hasn't had a real writing partner on these book projects since Carl Bernstein in the Watergate days. Here's that conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Bob Costa, it's good to see you. Welcome back to the Institute of It's Politics. great to be back, Dave. We should point out that you go by Robert Costa in your byline so as not to be confused with Bob Costas. That's right. <laughs> and then at work, when, we, when you work with a Bob, we ended up just referring to each other by our surnames when we were around <laughs> his office. Uh, it would be Woodward and Costa because too many Bobs. Are, are, yeah. A lot of people, the person who reads our book is Bob Petkoff, Robert Petkoff, our lawyers a Bob. Yeah, lots of Bobs going around. Well, it used, to be, it used to be that they'd yell Woodward and Bernstein in the Washington Post newsroom a long time ago. I'm looking out at this audience. I suspect there are a few people who remember that. <laughs> I certainly do. Uh, and they, that was like a brand, Woodward and Bernstein, like Sears and Roebuck. Uh, and now it's Woodward and Costa, which is a pretty heady thing. I'm asking. <laughs> it's, uh, there's only one Bob Woodward and only one Carl Bernstein. And like everybody who is in journalism, especially political journalism, you watch all the president's men and you read the book and you can't help but be wowed by it. I mean, that was the story. Uh, a presidency collapses based on reporting and, and diligent reporting. And Woodward and Bernstein remain the standard. And the, the opportunity to work with Woodward is, is amazing, and no one could ever replace Carl Bernstein in the pantheon of journalism. I'm just someone who's glad to work with another Bob, the Bob. Yeah. I feel like you've been asked that question before. Uh, well, no, I mean, no, it's I, just, a natural I, thing. I, just, I have such respect for Carl Bernstein. Yeah. So well, it's, Carl's a it's a, it's a, of it is heady to even be associated with uh, Woodward and Bernstein in a tangential way. And I just tried to approach it as a reporter. It's great to even be asked that question. Yeah. Well, I won't ask you who would play you if there were another <laughs> movie. But, so, uh, but I do want people to get a sense of who you are. Sure. Uh, because um, uh, you have, you, you've had quite a, a, a meteoric uh, rise in your career. And that I guess was predicted by the fact that you were kind of a precocious kid back there in Yardley, 
Pennsylvania. Talk about your family and did you talk about news and politics a lot? How is it that you at a very early age got consumed by this? Well, I was, uh, grew up outside of Philadelphia in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and I never thought that journalism w could be an actual career. My parents are both attorneys, and while I would watch a movie from time to time like All the President's Men, to me, journalism just seemed like a far-off thing, and I never expected to do it as a job. But I always loved history and loved politics, and my dad, uh, Tom Costa, he's a, a lawyer uh, for a pharmaceutical company. He's retired now. And he always loved history and politics, and he would collect first edition books of nonfiction and, and, and fiction. And sometimes we would go to bookstores and look up nonfiction books about the presidency. And some of those books would be Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein books or Bob Woodward books. Uh, and my father and my mom. And your mom, dad said, son, one day. No, he never did. He never did. <laughs> there was no expectation. It's journalism. When you grow up, in, in, I went to a public school in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and uh, you just don't think about doing it as a job. Now, I did high school TV I, when I was in college. I thought journalism was a way for me to kind of touch history. So when I was in college at Notre Dame, I interned for Charlie Rose on PBS, for George Stephanopoulos on ABC, and in the House of Commons. So I always was a political junkie. <laughs> yeah. and I just wanted to kind of be in the dugout shall we say, of American politics. But when I was, I think that real turning point in my career, and I don't think I've ever mentioned this to anyone, is in the summer of 2007, I did what I thought I was expected to do. I interned at J.P. Morgan. And uh, I thought I was going to be an investment banker like so many people around me. And at the end of the summer at J.P. Morgan, they sit down, and I, I was expecting to get an offer for a $60,000 a year job as a, a banker. And they sat me down and said, Costa, we really appreciate you, you like having You seem like a journalist, they said. Yeah, they said, we're not giving you an offer. <laughs> so I said, okay. I was kind of shocked. That was kind of the first hit in the face. And I said, well, I'm going to go have fun then. If I'm not going to get an offer to go be a banker for J.P. Morgan, I'm going to go have some fun. And I went to grad school at Cambridge and got a degree in politics and uh, have just kind of been on the journalism track ever since, never yeah. really thinking it would last. Yeah. I feel like your chances are good. That's good. Um, so in high school, in, in, in high, you did do journalism, and a lot of it was writing about music and rock music, and you did that through high school. You did it in college. That was like something that consumed you as well, apparently. It did. I was the editor of the high school newspaper that I used to print out in my own house, and one time I did an investigative story of how everyone in the school acquired pot. And it was a deep dive, and it made it into the local Was newspaper. this a how-to, or was it an investigative? It was an investigative report. Yeah. And so all the potheads in school confronted me, because it made it into the regional newspaper as a story. I got a freelance story in the regional paper, 75,000 readers, Bucks County Courier Times. And all these potheads confronted me in the school. And they said, our parents put this article in front of us at the breakfast table. You revealed all of our tricks. They now know everything about how we smoke and acquire this. So I realize that journalism does have an impact. Yeah. So you weren't, uh, you weren't voted the most popular. Uh. That, I, I always realized that uh, I had some fun with politics, and I lost for a couple races in student government in high school. But then I started to recruit bands to come play at my this school. This is what I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. yeah. So I got Maroon 5 before they were famous to come play. And speaking of pot, they came, they parked their bus, 
and they came off the bus, and let's say they were wandering around, and they walk into the home ec room and take out all the freshly baked cookies, and then they, <laughs> and then they play. Well, a, that's a way to bounce back from the old pot ex expose. Yeah, and I was a music reporter. For me, mu journalism really was a way for me to go on better dates because record companies would think I was an older person. I would because I was writing for a regional newspaper. And so I would request concert tickets, and I would get paid 50 bucks to go write a concert re review. And these bands would think I was someone in their 20s or 30s, but I was 17. And I would go backstage, and you could just see the disappointment on these rock stars like John Mayer. And so I went to talk to John Mayer backstage one time, and I said, you've got to come play at my high school prom. I, I read about this. And he did. He did. He did. He did. See, this is what I mean by precocious. I mean, that, that, that takes some stone. You know, stone. there's a connection to Obama, President Obama. The next time I saw John Mayer was years later at President Obama's second inaugural, uh, speaking of precocious, you've got to be who, who you are who you are. I, I, John Mayer's walking up to sit in the VIP seats near the press pen, pen, and John Mayer recognizes me, sees me, he's with Katy Perry, and he says one thing to me, of course you're here. <laughs> <laughs> So you got your degree at Cambridge, and you uh, and you want and you then you got your first journalism job, and it was with the National Review. Yeah, that my whole life is kind of wild. I mean, I'm over at Cambridge. I think that's been established. Yeah, and I I was in the best shape of my life when I was in Cambridge because I had no <laughs> I had no uh, great funds to go have great meals. So I was walking around town all the time and. When it came time to apply for a job, I would call up all these journalism places and businesses and say, I'd really like to interview for a job. And they'd say, well, can you come in for an interview in New York or Washington? I said, well, I'm actually at Cambridge getting a master's. Can you fly me back? And they said, what are you talking about? This is an entry-level job. We're not going to fly you from London to come interview for some $45,000 a year job. And the one place that would hire me was National Review Magazine over the phone. And it was a $50,000 a year fellowship. And I said to National Review, look, I really want this job because I'd like to be a reporter. Can I take this job and not write anything conservative? And Rich Lowry, to his credit, the editor of National Review, is a good man. He said, that's odd. Who wants to work at National Review and not write <laughs> conservative articles? But we will, we'll take you on. And you seem like you're going to go get it in terms of the reporting. So I said to Rich Lowry, I want this gig to report on the Republican Party as a beat and just leave it at that and kind of write dead straight stories and let, just let it sit. And it, it was something that happened on a phone interview because no one else would hire me because I was on, over in England. And I go to National Review to be a reporter and I say to myself from day one at National Review, I'm going to stick to this and not veer into editorial. Yeah, could have been Mother Jones, in other words. Yeah, really yeah. could have. But, yeah. but that is, that's the crazy thing is, because I go to National Review to be a reporter, I start to cover people like Sarah Palin, Steve Bannon, and Donald yeah. Trump. I, I wanted to ask you about that, because you arrived in 2009, and what a, what a kind of portentous time to, to, to begin reporting, particularly on that beat. And it was the first year of the Obama administration. I have some recollections of it. And, uh, and the Republican Party uh, really began the transformation that you write about in, in this book, uh, Peril with Bob Woodward. Uh, talk about those years and what your observations were of the Republican Party as you found it 
in 2009. Well, I always thought President Trump, uh, when he was candidate Trump and Mr. Trump, had a real shot at winning the presidency. And it's not because I'm some seer. Uh, when I co started covering politics in 2009, it was during the healthcare fight, and I would go to Tea Party rally after Tea Party rally, and the visceral anger on the right toward President Obama, uh, the birtherism, the racism that was in some quarters, the just fury, it was very real. And I wasn't some reporter who kind of came in and out. My whole beat was to live with these crowds of Tea Party supporters, Tea Party congressmen, and I just stayed in that day in, day out, reporting, reporting, reporting. And it was so evident that something was churning. I remember going to events with the late Arlen Specter in Pennsylvania, and him just being stunned and almost rattled by the convulsions in his own party. He ultimately changed Left his party. the party, yeah. You probably even may have been the one who invited him to change well, parties. Well, I think uh, Joe Biden would claim credit for okay. that. Okay. Yeah. But, um, uh, and, and then you, you, you did this for uh, five years, and then you got hired by the Washington Post, which was an unusual uh, kind of... Uh, it is. I give the Post credit, Stephen Ginsburg, the national editor to this day, he read through all my stories at National Review. He said, this is like you work for the AP. And I said, exactly. It's nice for someone to actually read what I did. And they prob probably actually profited the Post, even though you were a straight journalist. It, it didn't hurt them to have a reporter who had that National Review uh, pedigree and who had the sources that you had in the Republican Party. Yeah, and I just, my whole approach is, whether it's the progressive left or the Trump right, you got to take political movements seriously. And that's what I said to Ginsburg when I started at the Post. I said, I'm going to keep tracking all of this, left and right, and take movements seriously. I mean, the thing that's above my computer from day one is assume nothing, because I don't believe assumptions give us any guidance in politics. You've got to tell the story. In 2017, it was kind of shocking to uh, the world. Uh, Gwen Eiffel died, late, great. Uh, journalist who is the host of Washington Week in Review, and you emerged as the host of Washington Week in Review at 31. How did that, how did that happen? Did you apply for the job? I, I wouldn't even say apply. It was strange, I mean, like a lot of other things. Uh, Gwen Eiffel was an amazing person. I was on Washington Week for four or five years before she died in late 2016, and Washington Week was having guest hosts for months and hadn't made a decision. And I had no agent. Were you among the guest hosts? No. So one day I'm in the green room after doing Washington Week, and I'm talking with the producers. They're like, we can't find anyone to host this show who kind of fits. And they watched the audience, the numbers very closely. And I said in the green room, I guess this is February of late February of 2017, well, I'll guest host. And they go, you? You want yeah. a guest host? And I go, yeah, you've asked everybody else. <laughs> I mean. And John Mayer said, welcome to my life. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I guest hosted. And I guess it went well, because I guest hosted and never stopped hosting for the next four years. Yeah. By the way, when you were here as a fellow, I don't think this is impertinent to say, you were a chunkier guy. It's true. Uh, you, you, did Pandemic's you, testing us all. Did you, uh, did you drop the weight for the TV job? Is that what was the impetus for? No, it was not. And can you talk to me afterwards about how you do that? Because I'd really like to know. I don't know. Every presidential campaign, I can't imagine what it's been like for you, but every presidential campaign as a reporter, in 2012, 2016, I, every November, every four years, I just feel like I'm about to collapse. Like, yes. just, oh, oh, yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. What have I been doing? I've been eating terribly. And yeah. 
I was doing washing week, and it had, no one told me to lose weight. I'm glad I kind of got the TV gig as a, a chubby guy. It, it's not like I had yeah, the to whole slip world down. was rooting you on, right? But I remember waking up one day in September, October 2017, after I'd been hosting for a few months, and I said to myself, "Why? I just why am I exhausted all the time?" And it's just because I said to myself, I'm, "No one should be eating ice cream and hamburgers all the time every day." And so I said, "I got to write that down." <laughs> So I said to myself, you asked the question, this is too much information. I said, I'm not going to weigh myself. I'm just going to start taking a walk for an hour a day, and I'm going to drink black coffee. And I, I just never walked. Instead of trying to even go to the gym, I said, just get my ass up and walk. Walk for an hour and try to drink coffee. I cut out soda. And it really worked. Wow. Discipline, just routine. Incredible. Yeah. You did that for four years, and the reason you stopped doing it was because... Woodward offered you this gig. Tell me about that. I mean, again, did you sidle up to his office and say, hey, you know, you haven't had anybody since Bernstein, and I'm available? And yeah, I don't think you can do that with Bob Woodward. <laughs> Bob, Bob Woodward and I, sometimes you just connect with people. And he and I connected years ago when I started at The Post. He, under, he understood me, I think, in a way, maybe some others don't, that I just want to report. And he, he is a reporter's reporter. And I remember talking to him in 2015 when I started covering Trump. And I said, gosh, this guy could win. He said, if he could win, we got to take him seriously as reporters, and not just ask him news of the day, ask him governing questions. So I said to Woodward, well, let's do it together. Let's talk to Trump. And so we sent Trump, as a, he was a candidate, a, a list of questions, serious questions, foreign policy, national security. And he met with you anyway, huh? Right. <laughs> he did. And we interviewed him on March 31st, 2016. Uh, Woodward and I interviewed him. And we interviewed Trump for about 90 minutes. And those questions still kind of are relevant to this day about how does he see power. Woodward got two book titles out of that interview. In that interview, uh, Trump says, real power is, I don't even want to say the word, fear. And Woodward also, uh, Trump also said, rage, I always bring it out, I always have. So those two titles both came from that interview we did together. And we've always just remained, we've always had a great rapport. And I have such respect for him. And we came together on this book. He was looking to do a third book. And we talked about it over Thanksgiving uh, of 2020. And it came together very quickly. It just felt right to me. And so I said, let's do it. What, what have you learned? I mean, I was a subject. He sends his very best. Uh, yeah, I know. With COVID. Because I you sang know, like a canary. Traveling. No, <laughs> you no said, I, I mean, didn't say that. I mean, the, 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 the process of being interviewed by Bob Woodward is very interesting. And I, I, I'm wondering how that has affected the way you oh, approach so these things? Because it is a little bit like giving a deposition. Uh, he, although he does, I should say, often invite you over to his home. Very nice meal. Lots of wine, which he never drinks. Uh, and it's only about on the third or fourth glass when you realize, maybe this is inadvisable. Uh, Maybe I'm the spider caught in the web. I knew I was really following Woodward's method when I had a source over to my home. And I remember Woodward said, just keep them talking. And so I had a, the source said, I'm hungry. And he said, I said, well, what do you want? Chicken salad sandwiches. I said, OK. I ordered some chicken salad sandwiches, picked them up. The source kept talking for a couple of hours. I'm hungry. What do you want? Pizza. All right. <laughs> I ordered some pizza. Then he wanted some beer. And so. 
I said, this is the Woodward method. Woodward has soup and wine. I'm doing chicken salad and pizza. But the whole thing is you bring people over to your house. And I, I realized working with Woodward for the last nine or 10 months that I was kind of not doing reporting right. I'm so glad I stepped away to do this because his method really works. Talk to people, and you know this more than anyone, with this program, talk to people for longer periods, go back. And one of the things he does is he studies the transcripts. Yeah, no, he'll sit there with transcripts in front of him, and you think to yourself, ooh, I better get this right. Well, it's amazing to see him work because you realize when I'm a daily reporter, you're trying to rush to the deadline. You've got to get the quote, get the scoop, and that's understandable. You've got to rush. When you have the luxury of time, you can really, if, if I interviewed you for two or three hours on the record or on deep background, what I think is the news at first may not be the news. Because I, I, you may recount a scene two hours in that actually is the beginning of a chapter potentially in a book. But I didn't think about it as newsmaking when you said it because it may have been as we were casually having a glass of wine or talking. So Woodward's whole approach is go back, go back, ask further questions. And he always has this thing where he pinches himself, shut up. Listen, 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 because people often want to help you get closer to the truth. Some people spin, but a lot of times people do want to help you get there. You just got to let them get there by, by being quiet. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Let me ask you about that spinning thing, because um, I, I, I read this book, and I've read most of his other books, and I, obviously I had familiarity with some of the things that he's written uh, firsthand. And it does strike me, you know, Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is very much a figure in this book. And it's very clear, and he, you don't have to acknowledge it, because he did in front of a, a, a congressional committee. He was a source on the book. He spoke. And it's pretty clear he spoke at length uh, with, uh, with you guys. And he comes out pretty well in this book. He's kind of heroic uh, in this book. And it does, you know, there's always this question as to when you're reliant on people who are willing to talk, are the people who are willing to talk uh, going to look better? And is because I'll tell you something, in Washington, one of the impetuses for people to talk to Woodward has, has been well, if I talk to him, maybe I will come out better. Now, it didn't work out well for Donald Trump. Uh, but, um, you know, how do you keep from being used, frankly? It's a good question. And I, what people say about their level of participation is for them to say, we're just not going to discuss sourcing. I'm not asking you yeah, to. Yeah, sure. I think. But what, Millie talked a but lot. But when you say come off well, I think that's a lot of times people's interpretation. Uh, we're trying to recount what we've. Uh, collected and confirmed. And so Millie, for example, based on our reporting, he went within the procedures of the chairman's office on the reassuring people, reassuring the, making sure that the nuclear arsenal was under control. And when it came to the ch calls with China's General Lee, he was working within the procedures. It, does that mean he comes off well? It's, it's for you to say or others to say. We're just trying to capture the story as well, it's it is. He's got some sort of self-reported kind of West Wing orations in there that are, you know, a little bit more, they're, they're not sort of just fast. And, and Milley has been heavily criticized by some Republicans uh, for some of his decisions during the transition. So 
It's not like people are without scrutiny. We're just trying to stick to the center of the reporting, not taking a stand on it. But it's a fair, I've gotten this question a lot about Barr, and Barr is a character in Bob the book. Bob Barr, the uh, former uh, attorney general. Uh, William Barr, yeah. Bill Barr. Bill yeah, Barr, yeah. Bob Barr's the former Bob Barr used to be the Cook County Republican <laughs> chairman right. in the 1970s. I'm having some flashbacks here. I'm sorry. But I <laughs> must, mean, have been, must have been those cookies. William Barr, in the book, he sometimes, he, he's advising the president as attorney general on politics. Does that mean he comes off well? I mean, he shows, we show him working closely with the president while in, the chief law enforcement officer being a political strategist for the president. It does serve him, though. It, I mean, it, it may be, you know, it does serve his purposes because uh, it kind of relieves him of some of the stench of some of the things that, uh, that, that happen. Um, but what about these, you know, you, do, you report on conversations between Trump and people. Some are phone conversations. Trump didn't talk to you for this book. He did not. So if there are two people on a conversation, you're really reliant on one person's version, aren't you? Well, a lot of people are familiar with events and calls. A lot of times when major people make phone calls, there are sometimes notes, transcripts, tapes, and you just try to collect as much information as possible. And so people guess about how we learned about certain things. Some guesses are spot on, some are way off. And I, it, it, we're not trying to be secretive with the deep background. Deep background is a way for us to use everything we confirm and collect. We just don't discuss attribution. And it has its drawbacks, no doubt about it, but it has its advantages because a lot of times people will be more willing to open their email inboxes and notebooks and whole boxes of notes if they know that they're, not good, they're going to be protected in terms of being the actual source. Let's talk about the book. It's been covered and covered and covered, and a lot of people are familiar with uh, the major sort of sure. fault lines in the book. Um, there was one conversation that, that uh, was not reported widely that struck me as really meaningful, and that was the one between Hope Hicks, who's the aide who was very close to President Trump. I think it was on November 9th, uh, but after the election, when she went in and she told him that he needed to concede, and he said, uh, but, but then that will become my legacy. And it reminded me of a conversation that has been reported that Trump had with his father many years ago, in which his father said there are two kinds of people in the world. There are killers and there are losers. Being a loser is the worst thing you could be in Donald Trump's mind. And, and in fact, when he wanted to insult people, the ultimate insult was he'd call someone a loser. So this goes deep. It isn't just that he, that he wanted power. It's that he could not accept the fact that he was a loser. That Hope Hicks scene, to me, is maybe the most revealing scene in the book, and it gets almost no attention, because it tells you everything about who Trump is. I mean, she knows him as well as anyone, Hope Hicks, and she goes in there, based on our reporting, and she says, go back to Mar-a-Lago, be the king of the GOP. You, you can have everything at your fingertips, speeches, TV shows, everything you want. And he just says, I can't. My people demand I fight. I must fight. My brand, my legacy, everything is about the fight. And he... He seizes on this idea, but it goes back to his father. It goes back to his whole psyche. And I'm not a psychiatrist, but I remember sitting there in, on his, his Trump Tower office on the 26th floor years ago, and the one picture that sat in front of him was his father's black and white picture 
uh, with that mustache, and, and it's, he would say to me, my father it was the toughest man alive, so tough. And when he went to the Oval Office, the first thing he brought was that picture of his father that sat right there on the Resolute desk, and that informs him. And the other scene coupled with the Hope Hicks is Kellyanne Conway has a conversation with Trump a few days after the election, and he privately says to her, how did we lose to Biden? Yes. Lose. He knew he lost. Yeah. But once Giuliani and others start saying, no, you, it was stolen, he just says, okay, that's the refrain. Never again will I look back. Do you believe that he, over time, came to persuade himself that he had actually won? I mean, you know, remember back in 2017, he insisted that he had won the popular vote and actually impaneled a commission to find the three million lost votes, and they were about as uh, effective as that panel down in Arizona was uh, this year, and uh, there were no three million votes. I mean, does, did he come to believe his own lie? He, I, I can't read his mind, but good, the angriest for you, I've ever seen Trump ever is when he's, he's, he's uh, shown as not having a big crowd. That makes him furious. He always wants to be seen as the winner, the most popular person. There was a joke a Trump advisor told me in 2016 that the hope was, this Trump advisor said, was that if in 2016 Trump would win the popular vote but lose the Electoral College, because then he could never have to be president but always say, I really won. Instead, the opposite happens. Yeah. He loses the popular Overshot vote. Overshot the runway there. Yeah. So he, he wins the presidency, which he was not expecting to win, but he doesn't get what he really wants, at least in the eyes of those around him, which is the popularity status of the popular vote. So this pathology sets a chain of, I'm not a psychiatrist either, so I should, probably shouldn't use that term, but it's my podcast. Um, it is, it is. The, uh, uh, this sets a, a chain of events in motion where you know, people who are rational kind of peeled away, uh, and you report on this, Barr, for example, uh, Lindsey Graham, and uh, uh, Senator Lee from Utah and others, who basically had some grounding in reality and said, hey, this isn't really true. But then other people kind of rushed into the uh, breach there to say, no, actually, this is, there is an alternative fact or an alternative truth, as they've spoken about before. So talk about that. There's so many jarring things we came across in our reporting. And one thing that stands out is the Trump campaign had a whole post-election legal strategy, and they're ready to run it as a legal team for the campaign. And then Giuliani comes in and says, I have 80 affidavits. I have eight affidavits. I have 27 affidavits. I have He's, he seems to, in the view of other Trump advisors, seems to be creating affidavits out of thin air. And then Sidney Powell comes in with her theories about the vote. Another, another sort of fringe attorney. Fringe attorney. And so you see... But Trump wanted to make her a, a, a special... Special counsel. And this is, this is real stuff. It, it seems wild and conspiratorial, which it is. But there was a meeting in December where she was this close to being either installed at DOJ or in the White House. The only reason, based on our reporting, it didn't happen is Giuliani's so nervous that she's going to now be seen as the Trump lawyer, that he makes sure it doesn't happen, because he wants to be out in front. No honor among thieves, huh? Uh, so talk about Mike Pence, uh, because Trump was relentlessly putting pressure on Pence to 
at, he, he has sort of an honorific role in the Constitution to preside over the counting of the electoral votes. When all else failed, every lawsuit failed, the electoral count was certified, Trump turned his attention to this proceeding on January 6th and started pressuring Pence. You reported, and this got a lot of attention, that he, he sought counsel from Dan Quayle, mm-hmm. former vice president. First of all, why, why did he go to Quayle? Is it fellow in Indianans? Or what, what I is mean, it? he's the only other person on earth who shares Pence's profile as a Hoosier, conservative Republican vice president. That's it, huh? That's it. He looked it up in the encyclopedia. I'm, I'm sure they've crisscrossed over the years. And talk about that conversation, because, you know, Pence gets, I think, justifiable credit for not, not yielding to Trump. But that conversation suggests that he sure was trying to find a way to. Yeah, and that's when you say something about heroes, I, I really think this whole story of the transition period in the first year of Biden, it's complicated. The Pence story is not about hero or villain. It's about what actually happened. And I knew Pence years ago when he was a House Republican. He used to wander around the Speaker's lobby outside of the House chamber on the second floor. And he would joke. He was a conservative. He was a good quote because he used to be a talk radio show host. He, he, he liked to say he was Rush Limbaugh on decaf. And he had all these kind of jokes. And he was just a guy who was a rank and file Republican from Indiana, decides to run for governor, and then he gets swept in when he may, may even lose the gubernatorial race in 2016. Yeah. He gets pulled into Trump's orbit as VP nominee. And as we all know, for four years, everything Trump wants, he's eager to do. Yeah. Even to this day, after what happened, he was on Sean Hannity's show in recent days. He's still pro-Trump. Well, isn't that because he wants, part, to run. he wants to run for president and you can't not be pro-Trump in this Republican Party. And, uh, and expect to, uh, to, to be viable. But he's historically significant to this day, I think, as a reporter, because from the John Eastman memo to the intense yeah. pressure campaign on President Trump, if Mike Pence, whether you love him or hate him, if Mike Pence decides on January 6th, even though his role is only to count the votes, if he says this is all fake, seven states shouldn't count their electors, this whole process is rigged, if he does what Trump wants and tries to delay it, or smear it, you could see the United States having a constitutional crisis because the Biden presidency would not be seen as legitimate. And so as much as Pence himself is an interesting story, his decision really could have tested American democracy in a way we haven't seen. For sure. I I guess my question is, why did he need Dan Quayle to tell him that's what he needed to do? (laughs) Well, you see in that conversation with Dan Quayle, he says, you don't understand what I'm going through. Yeah. And Pence, to your point, wants to run. He's a politician. He doesn't want to just have some kind of theatrical West Wing moment where he breaks ranks with Trump. He wants to do what the president wants him to do, but he has lawyers around him saying, you can't do this. And then when Trump hears about his lawyers giving him, and Mark Short and others, his advisors, telling him you can't do it, that's when the Eastman stuff starts happening. That's when Mark Meadows and the White House, they start trying to get conservative buy-in to make Pence be persuaded. The thing that I didn't understand until I really finished this with Woodward is at first I thought the insurrection was a January 6th event. But to me, the real story after finishing this book with Bob is that the conspiracy of the effort in the days prior was so significant and so serious that the insurrection was the culmination and final inning of something that had been going on. I mean, think about this. People forget specifics. 
but it's in the book. On January 5th, near midnight, President Trump is so disappointed by what Pence's position is after the one-on-one meeting in the Oval, he issues a public statement speaking for Pence, saying Pence fully agrees with me and will do what I want. I mean, this was gone to the absolute last minute. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Pence had been, you know, uh, supportive for four years. It it must be hard to carry that much water for those many years. Then you get kicked to the curb at the end. But uh, yeah, that that was remarkable. We'll talk about John Eastman, who I should point out is a graduate of this esteemed university's law school. Uh, I don't think you'd get very many scholars here to agree with the interpretation that he walked into the Oval Office. Uh, But he basically tried to create legal cover for Pence to to do what was patently unconstitutional. It's a memo that's two pages long, and it's a six-point plan for the vice president to throw out electors from states. And without going into this in too much detail, if you take out the number of six or seven states of electors on January 6th, Biden's number drops, and it drops below 270. If Biden doesn't have 270 on January 6th, Congress can't certify it. What happens then? It goes to the House of Representatives. And a quirk of the Constitution means if the election suddenly goes to the House of Representatives, the vote is taken in the House. But even though Democrats have a majority, the vote's not taken by a simple majority. The vote's taken by a delegation vote. And because Republicans have the most delegations in the House of Representatives, even though they don't have the actual majority, Trump could win the presidency. This was a whole push to get Pence to do that, throw it to the House so Kevin McCarthy and the House Republicans could give Trump the presidency. And what was the idea behind January 6th? I mean, Steve Bannon was a big force pushing on this January 6th thing. Trump said it's going to be a while. Was it to pressure Pence? Was it to pressure members of Congress? All of the above. Mm-hmm. It, it, Pence is a huge part of it. But think about Senator Lee getting this Eastman memo from the White House and being told this is the plan, trying to get his endorsement. They wanted the whole Republican Party to buy in. I mean, the scene that has stood out to the January 6th committee is on December 30th, 2020. Trump and Bannon are on the phone, and Bannon says, you've got to call Pence off the effing ski slopes, get him back to Washington. And Trump, who loves the New Year's Eve party at Mar-a-Lago, decides to skip it and come back to Washington to focus like a laser on January 6th. President Trump in recent days was asked about whether Bannon was advising him during the transition. He says, no, no, no. And then the, the interviewer said, well, was he talking to you? Well, yes, but very little. Mm-hmm. So we'll see if Bannon answers the subpoena from the January 6th commission. What we see with Bannon, though, is power can be wielded outside of official channels. Bannon, with his podcast, talking to Trump advisor Jason Miller, talking with Rudy Giuliani, they're all there at the Willard Hotel on January 5th, talking by phone with President Trump. And remember, the Willard is the, the, the scene where the crowd, the mob, is gathering ahead of January 6th, and they're all there. And all these pieces are like a puzzle. I'm not sure, sure what the puzzle looks like fully even after doing this, but the puzzle's coming together. I want to ask you just a couple of questions about Biden and, and then return to Trump, because your book doesn't just cover the end of Trump, but also the, the, the first stanzas of the Biden administration, including the decision-making around 
Afghanistan. And just summarize what you guys discovered. And you probably went to print before the actual withdrawal, so that you probably did not cover that in your reporting. What we did uncover that there was a real deliberation uh, inside the Biden White House, the Biden cabinet, Secretary Austin, Secretary Blinken, go to the NATO meeting, uh, they're talking to the military leaders both here and abroad, and they want to slow down the withdrawal. Aust Secretary Austin has the idea of gated withdrawal over different conditions to make sure the Taliban are meeting certain conditions. But you would know more than anyone that President Biden is so informed by his time on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and his time in the first yeah. year, the first term of President Obama, when they made the decision on the 30,000 troops. To send 30,000 more troops to Afghanistan. And Biden was against it. Yes. And he, he, didn't, he thought the military was always going to keep asking for more troops. Yes. And now you see a president who's forged by his past experiences. And it wasn't just that he, he was against it. It was that he also was held up to ridicule and scorn by Bob Gates and others. And he resented it because I think he feels he was right about that. So you're saying that it was that that drove him to, at the end, say, no, we're not going to do that. And there's this scene in the book uh, where he's walking along the, the graves in Arlington National Cemetery, and he just says, you know, how many people have to die here? Mm -hmm. And I think he, after 20 years, he had had enough, and he had been up to the glass of this war like, unlike anyone else. And he, he, he was presented, as we detail in the book, with the worst-case scenarios. The Taliban could easily take over the capital. They could take over the whole country quickly. They could start doing horrific things to women immediately. Uh, and he knew that. Uh, that was presented as a worst-case scenario in the book. Uh, but he still was determined to move forward. I think the most important thing that you guys report on, and, and it was discussed in real time uh, when he made the decision or, or when the withdrawal began, was the realization that apparently the military agreed with that ultimately it would take more than 2,500 or 3,500 troops uh, to remain in Afghanistan because the Taliban would resume uh, uh, hostilities against American troops. And you could see the number of troops that were required just to get people out uh, of Afghanistan. So his, his decision, as Jake Sullivan, his national security advisor, framed it was, are you going to send more troops in or are you going to withdraw? It wasn't maintaining the status quo. And one of my favorite scenes is when Biden's talking, President Biden's talking to Secretary Blinken after he's made the decision, and he's watching the cable shows here and there, and he sees all the outrage over the decision on Afghanistan. And the president's surprised. I mean, didn't people want to get out of Afghanistan? Wasn't this the decision my party wanted? The Republicans under Trump were pushing to get out of Afghanistan as soon as possible. We show how President Trump wanted a rapid withdrawal in November of 2020, he scribbled a memo outside of normal channels to get out of Afghanistan. And so Biden is standing back as president saying, what is this all about, this fury over my decision? And Blinken says to him, sir, you made a presidential decision. You made it in the presidential way. You went through all the right channels. And then Biden looks at him and goes, the buck really does stop here. Yeah. Well, I, uh, as someone who spent time there, thought throughout that period, as I often do, about what the presidency actually is like and the pressures that are unrelenting on the person who sits there. And um, I'm sure he's, he's feeling it now. Let, let's talk about now, because your book is called Peril, 
And by the way, kudos to Woodward because uh, he's done away with those wordy titles like all the president's men, and now we're just down to one word. Uh, so that's good. But uh, you make very clear at the end of the book that this is not about just what happened in the past. You consider this also about what may happen in the future. And I thought of that today because I, a few things, I, I saw this Trump going to the Iowa State Fair this weekend. He may have chosen that state arbitrarily, <laughs> but I suspect not. He's going to the fairgrounds, he's having a rally. Uh, just at a time when a poll there reports that he has an approval rating that is equal to the highest he had, or higher than the highest he had in the state when he was president. I also heard Steve Bannon a bit from his podcast talking about how we're going to win in 22, we're going to win in 24, and then we've got 20,000 shock troops ready to go into the government and take control like we didn't before. Um, shock troops. Shock troops, yeah. Well, I got to go back and see whether that was, a, that was how someone described what he said, but that was the essence of it. We've got people trained up and ready no, I, to go. I saw the quote. I saw yeah. the podcast. Yeah. So put that in the context of the reporting that you did for this book. Well, there's one scene at the end, David, where James Clyburn, the House minority, majority whip, uh, top Biden ally, he's trying to get Senator Manchin to break on the filibuster because he says Republicans across the country are going hog wild on voting and they're trying to pass all these Republican voter laws. They're getting elected to positions like Secretary of State or running elections in municipalities. And he says to Manchin one-on-one, -on -one, you have to break on the filibuster on voting rights. Do this for me. Do it for people of color. Do it for Democrats. Do it for the country. And Manchin holds. Manchin does not break on this. And Clyburn later tells others, democracy is on fire. And that, to me, is the real peril that remains. I can't come out of this reporting process and not believe that democracy is, I maybe not, may not use Clyburn's exact phrase, but it, it is certainly being tested. And President Trump twice impeached. His supporters have an insurrection at the United States Capitol. His, he and his allies had a pressure campaign to force the vice, almost force the vice president to throw the election to the House. And yet he's being told by his pollsters at Mar-a-Lago and New Jersey that he's more popular than ever. And he's going to Iowa and being welcomed by every Republican party in that state and across the country. And this is a Republican party and a former president who remain very active. I mean, Woodward and I would joke, and Woodward would say, when Nixon leaves in 74, he goes away. He tries to lick his wounds in San Clemente and write books. Trump's on the trail. He's on the march. And if you listen to these speeches, I mean, people say we're exhausted by Trump. Okay, I understand the feeling. But if just go to cspan.org or YouTube and watch these 90-minute rallies. This is not someone who's kind of going through the rifts. He's sounding like a wartime commander of his movement. We will never surrender. This election was stolen. We will never give in. And then this is coupled with people like Steve Bannon urging everyone on the right to get elected to local election positions. So come 2022 and 2024, if they want to have a, a better effort uh, to, to uh, win power and, or just take power, they'll be in position to do so. This is very real. And I know people, oh, politics is exhausting. This is so real when you spend time with these people. And some of these sources on the Republican side are very, very serious about wanting to change this country and wanting to have Trump come back. And if not Trump's, maybe someone even more to the right. They would, of course, say, 
not to change the country, but to prevent the country from changing. That's right. That's their, their line. Yeah. Bob, let me ask you as we go out, just because I don't want to end on that sobering note, uh, do you see this partnership now, having done this book with Bob Woodward, do you, do you see yourself as kind of a franchisee here? Are you, what, what, what is the future of this partnership and uh, when is the movie coming? Who, who knows about the movie? I'm, that'd be fun if it was made into a movie, but it'd be a pretty dark movie, probably. Uh, I don't know what you call it. Come on, man, I'm trying to lift people's well, spirits here. I appreciate it. You, 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 uh, well, just speaking about lifting spirits, working with Woodward has brought me real joy because, you know, I don't know what it's like as a political professional, but as a journalist, sometimes the grind can just, if you're, I was working three jobs for many years, PBS, MSNBC, and the Washington Post, and at some point, you just say, ah, what is this all about? And working with Woodward has let me rediscover my love of reporting. And working with him, kind of getting off TV for 10 months, really just reading transcripts, talking to people, not tweeting for 10 months, it was a thrill. Because you realize that the craft of reporting, which Bob does so well, is something that I enjoy doing, he enjoys doing, collaborating together was so much fun. I would do an interview, he would do an interview, sometimes we'd do them together to compare notes. And you really, I remember that journalism is such a journey of finding the truth. And he always would tell me, as we did this, Ben Bradley, the late editor of The Post, would always tell him, get the most obtainable version of the truth. Right. And that's the whole job. And, and working with Woodward has really made me remember that and try to, to try to keep that at the center of everything I'm doing, even though we all become busy in our lives. So I would love to work with him again. We'll see what that Well, he's an inveterate listener of this podcast, so I'll make sure he goes right to the end. I think when he hears you, he'll uh, sign you up for five more books. I hope the next one is called Sunrise and not, you know, Fear, Rage, Peril. We got I'm surprised you don't want it to be called Hope. Yeah, well, it's been taken. Okay. Right. Okay. Uh, Bob Costa. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. Brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.